You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. Mike um, said the next 30 minutes, that's a not so subtle way of saying wrap it up, big fella. Do... Love Mike Hall and Matt McGill. These guys, if you don't know Mike and Matt, you really, you really should. And I just want you to know that they both have unlimited personal resources to take you to Dakotas or any place else in town that you want to go. So you can get to know them better. Uh, in fact, they, they really have nothing else to do but to hang out and to buy your dinner. So make sure you take advantage of that. I do love these guys. These guys, uh, man, they're, they're so fun to serve alongside with and to... And to be a part of the leadership in the church, these guys are partners in the gospel. They're some of my closest personal friends. They're my brothers, and I love them. And so I'm thankful that um, I get to do this thing called church with them. And my name is Eric Barton, and for those of you whom I don't know, I really do want to get to know you. I want to know really why the Lord has brought you here from, from your perspective, because I think I have a sense of why the Lord has brought you here, but I might be wrong. I might not know the whole story, and so I would love to know that about you. And as Mike's already said, there are some uh, environments, there are some venues in the coming days that we want to make sure that you are a part of. If you've never come through something like Discover Bethel, we want you to do that so that you really understand what we are all about here at Bethel. Well, I want to start off this morning really sort of as the grand culmination of what we've been doing all summer. All summer long, we've been talking about the pursuit of wisdom. What if we were a group of people who began to see ever increasingly the world through God's eyes? That we saw the world not through our own petty issues, needs, struggles, toils, and trials, but began to see it through God's eyes. We began to see other people through God's eyes. And so we studied through some of the Proverbs. We talked about the wisdom of our work and our worship and our words. We studied through some of the Psalms. And for the last few weeks here in the month of August, we've been talking about really the specific vision of Bethel, who we are, what we're trying to accomplish. We are the people called together according to God's purpose who in God's spirit gather around God's word. That's a lot. That's what we do. That's pretty much all we do. And so we've talked about that specifically. We want to be a church that is characterized by growing communities, by building leaders, and living generously. That's how we want to be known. That's what we believe that God has called Bethel to do and to be in our community in this context, which now finally brings us to sort of our culmination of the pursuit of wisdom. And I, and I want to start by uh, telling you a little bit of a, of a personally transparent story. Hear about Two and a half plus decades ago, I was in college, and I met a girl. And my wife knows this story, so it's okay. It's true. Uh, I met a girl, and, and my first thought, if I'm being completely transparent, and I will be, was, man, that chick has legs that go all the way to the floor. And praise God, they still do. And I thought, I was so captivated. I thought, this, wow. My goodness, that is a picture of beauty and grace. And so I found myself, like, trying to intersect her path. And I would do whatever it took. And finally, for whatever reason, she, by grace, lifted the restraining order. And I was able to be within, like, a 100-yard radius of her. And I would try to spend time with her in any way that I could. And it was really weird things. I mean, 
like she's an English and history major and we had no crossing of paths at all but I would like hang out outside the English building with the other hippies and fountain people she'd be like hey what are you doing here and I'd be like you and I found myself reorganizing my day re-architecting my whole structure so that I could spend more time with her and I found myself spending more time with her and I found myself caring about things that she cared about and I found myself doing really unwise things like staying up all night talking about things that I didn't previously know anything about much to the detriment to my already sorry grades all right so this is the kind of thing that began to happen to me and my dad well he began to figure out that this might be the one for starters, because she was actually a real human being. That had never happened before. I was actually in a relationship with a person, not one that I had made up, like Stella the Space Cowgirl or something. This person was real. And I started talking about things that she cared about more than the things that I cared about. And so my dad pulls me aside one day, and I was home for break, and he said, my son, let me warn you. If she really is the one, then you have to know that when you marry her, if you marry her, you will be marrying her whole family. And I was like, that's Creepsville, Dad. No, I'm not. It's just me and her, ever, forever. And that's all, just me and her, and she's perfect. She is literally sinless, and she's smoking hot. Dad, you're, that's it. That's all there is. You don't know anything. Well, by God's grace, we did get married, and of course, my dad wasn't so clueless after all. Marriage is, in fact, the union of two complete family trees, two family institutions that have come together. It's never just two individuals that intersect. It is two family systems that come together. And I always try to tell people this as we go through pre-marriage counseling. Hey, you just need to know you're marrying an entire family. So, so evaluate, make sure you understand what you're getting into. Speaking of which, the other night, we were having some dinner with some friends, Lloyd and Karen Olson, who spent a lot of time ministering to international students from India. And they were talking about marriage and how in the Indian culture, marriage really is not about the love of two people for one another. Marriage is about the families deciding this is good for our two family systems. And candidly, that's sort of been the way of the world for the majority of our history. Only in the West over the last couple, oh, 50, 60 years, have we had a premium of, hey, no, these two people choose independent of their families. These families do bring people together. And Totally transparently, when I married my wife, Susan, I got her family. And this group of people has loved me sacrificially and served me sacrificially. And I have had the opportunity to love them sacrificially and to serve them in their times of need. And these are people that, again, candidly, I probably would not have chosen. Not because they're not awesome, they are, but because I would have no other reason to ever cross paths with them or know that they existed on the planet. But because I have entered into a life-altering, covenantal relationship with a person, I now have family. And I love them as if they are my own family because you know what? They are. Well, by now, some of you can probably figure out where I'm going with this. There's a reason that marriage is the metaphor that Scripture uses to tell us about the church the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit. It is a marriage. Church is a bunch of people who have entered into a life-altering, covenantal relationship with a loving Redeemer and therefore are now free to love one another. 
which leads us to our big idea for the morning and really the thing that I want to sort of bang as a drum because this is wisdom for the rest of the semester, and it's this. God's love lets us love what God loves. God's love lets us love what God loves. And by the way, what God loves is people. So if you would, please, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, it's near the very, very back. 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And I want you to hear that refrain, God's love lets us love what God loves. Because apart from God's love, we can't love what God loves. 1 John chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 7. John, the apostle, the disciple, the revelator, writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me pause. If you have a Bible that has a different translation that does not use the word propitiation, here's what you do. You take that Bible, you close it, and you put it aside. You take it home, and you leave it there. And you get another Bible that has the word propitiation, because you need that word. I know it's a big SAT word. You need the word propitiation. More on that later. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Circle that, asterisk that, smiley face, emoji that, whatever you have to do is a massively important verse. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, by the way, what is hatred? It's not just anger. It can be assault, or it can be abandonment. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. This is the Apostle John writing to his church in Ephesus. John's an older man by this point. We think this is somewhere in the late 60s AD. The temple in Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed, but it's not far from happening. Pentecost, where the Spirit of God comes after the ascension of Jesus, is some 30 years ago. And so the church has begun to, to thrive and to blossom and to flourish and to kind of take off across the ancient Near East. 
Now, modern-day Turkey is sort of the hotbed of where the church is growing 2,000 years ago. In fact, about two-thirds of our New Testament is written to or from what is modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus is sort of the central nerve hub of that area, of the Eastern Roman Empire, the economic center, the cultural center, the religious center. And it is here that the Apostle Paul plants a church, sticks around for over three years. It's here that John, the disciple that Jesus loved, brings Mary, mother of Jesus. It is here that Timothy is the pastor as John goes off into exile on the island of Patmos. So much happens in the book of Ephesus. And John is writing this letter to his congregation, like, this is my one shot. This is the thing that I want you to know. This is the thing that is at the very core and the heart of who we are as a people. And it has to do with the timing of the rapture. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It has to do with the Jewish feasts and how we should obsess about those things. No, it doesn't. It has to do with how we love one another. That's at the heart of this pastor named John, how these people love one another. And I want you to think about the church in Ephesus that is comprised of all the varying degrees of socioeconomic statuses. You have in this church people called Asiarchs. These people are filthy, stinking rich. They're so wealthy they can fund their own Olympic games in the region of Ephesus. All the way down to slaves. We know from extra-biblical record, literally, former prostitutes and slaves rescued out of bondage, a part of this church. And John is saying, Beloved, we have to love one another. He's not saying, Asiarchs, dig Asiarchs. Slaves, y'all huddle up in a corner and talk about those eerie or irritating chains. No, beloved. So let me just sort of unpack this. 1 John chapter 4, here again beginning in verse 7. John starts off and he says, beloved, right there. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I got pay toy. It is a plural description. This is who the people in the church are. They are the recipients of God's love. You know this. John and the other writers of Scripture, Paul, Peter, they use a very specific word for love. But it's a unique word for love that was not very common, not very prevalent during the time that Scripture is being written. You've probably heard this before. There are multiple words for love in the Greek language. There is eros, that is romantic love that a, that a man has for a woman or a woman has for a man. It's the, the same emotion and feeling that I had when I looked across the campus and I saw her. It's obviously not the kind of love that John and the other writers of Scripture are talking about here. There's storge. Storge is a Greek word for familial love, the love a mother has for her child, that, that an uncle has for a nephew or a grandparent for a grandchild, that sort of familial love, storge. Then there's philos that has more the idea of side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder, camaraderie, friendship, brotherhood, Paul and Barnabas kind of love. But this is a different word. And this word agape, this word agape has the idea of giving and sending for the sake of the other. Expecting no recompense, expecting no payback, expecting nothing back out of the deal. And so John says, don't you know who you are? Y'all, y'all's is the ones that God gave himself, that he sent himself, that he pursued and sought and bought. That's your identity. You are beloved. And so because of that identity, John now gives us an imperative. But as we say all the time, I want to say it again, the imperative 
always follows the indicative. Let me explain. There is a reality of who God is, what he has done, and therefore who we are. God is love. He's loving. He's giving. He's sending. He volitionally wants the good of somebody else, even though he's the only one that deserves it. He gives and he sends, and therefore we are what follows is an imperative. Let us love one another. It's really just three beautiful poetic words in the Greek language. Agapetoi, agapomen, alelus. Now, I don't expect you to know that or even care, but I just want you to know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is beautiful prose that John writes. Agapetoi, the beloved. Agapomen, let us give of ourselves sacrificially, servantly, without any expectation of recompense or payback, one another. It's one of those master themes of the New Testament. The word one another occurs some 47 times. Always about we have to be about us. We have to be about us. John says, beloved, this is the thing. This is the jam. We are to love one another as God loves us. Well, he continues there in verse 7. For love is from God. This kind of love exists no place else. Oh, there are nice things happening with nice people in nice places that have nothing to do with Christianity. But a long-lasting in the same direction, kind of sacrificial, self-giving love that only comes from God himself because that is what God himself is. For love is from God. He is the root. He is the origin. And whoever loves in this way, this agape, has been born of God and knows God. How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you are born again of God? Because you have a desire to love others. Some of you just went, I couldn't care less about anybody else in this room or this cosmos. This is a good indicator. But if you do, I want to reassure you that that is not merely a human sensation. It is a divine spark, is what Peter calls it. If you have any desire for the good of another, whether a child, a spouse, somebody across the aisle, that is a divine reflection. Someone who has been born of God, who is regenerate, who is redeemed, is a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and knows God, has intimate, experiential familiarity with him. Doesn't just know a lot about him, like how to spell his name. Well, there's a G and a D, and I think there's an O in there someplace. No, 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 no. Not a lot of trivia about him, but you know him. You know what he's like. You know what he likes. You know what he doesn't like. You know the sound of his voice and how to hear from him. One of the indicators that you know this God is that you want to love his people. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Please note the word order. Love is not God, as our 21st century contemporary culture tries to tell us. Love is not God. God is love. And it's not just one of the things that God is like. God is sort of loving-ish. No, 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 no. God is love. It is his character. It's what he is like all the time. Which is very good news because he's also sovereign and holy and mighty and strong. But he's also good. And he is characterized by a self-givingness. This is the gospel. Great news. The awesome announcement. The good story. That the high, holy, strong one also gives himself for the sake of others. This is very good news. Verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest. 
Phanerao is this word. It became physically present. God himself as love, this is how it showed up on the scene. Verse 9, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God understands the yearning, the longing, the desire of every human heart is to have lastingness, to have a connection with the divine, to not expire at the end of our days. How is that going to happen? God says, I will address that. I will send myself. I will send the pure, spotless, holy, sinless one to rescue those who are not, who have no capacity nor desire to repay me. But I will send my own son, my own essence as a substitute for them. Verse 10, in this is love. We're going to get a picture now. This is the indicator. This is the example of what love looks like. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Now, why does John have to correct that? Because John is already fighting against every other system of religion that human beings have ever created. That we have to do something so that God will love us. John, right in the middle, has to correct it. No, 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 no. We didn't start this deal. He did. There is Christianity, which says God loved us, and there is every other form of human religion that says we've got to do something to get his love. John says, no, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I was sort of tongue-in-cheek talking about that your Bible needs to have that word propitiation, but I sort of also mean it. Super important term to understand who God is and what he has done, and therefore who you and I are if we are believers. Propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath. See, this is the gospel. We've already been told that God is love. He has a volitional, intentional desire for the good of others who do not deserve it. But he's also a God of wrath, is what the word propitiation tells us. Something has to give. How do God's love and how do God's wrath intersect? It's called the cross of Christ. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. It is set aside and deflected off of us who deserve it onto the one who does not. That's what Jesus accomplishes because of how much God loves us. He sent his only son to be the satisfaction of God's wrath. Now, verse 11, beloved, just in case you've forgotten who you are. Notice he does not say beloved if you feel it. Beloved if you're having a good day. Beloved if you get that warm, cozy feeling when they hit that song and do the bridge just so. No, beloved. This is declarative truth that God's word gives us. This is who we are because of what God has done. Whether you feel it or not, maybe you have a bad day, maybe it's raining. You are loved by God most high. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I gotta pause and be careful here. Because that word ought is the difference between Christianity and every other system of world religion. You could dangerously and precariously scoop 1 John 4.11 out and simply hear an ought. Okay, well, this is what i got to go and do. I have to go and do something now. I have to go accomplish and achieve. No, then you will have missed the entire point of 1 John. Read the whole book, not just this one verse. The ought here is because you are regenerate, because you are redeemed, because you are a new creation, what new creations do is love like God loves. You don't have to try to convince the sun to be bright and shiny and warm. It is because that's what a sun does. It's a star that is very toasty. 
You, you don't have to try to convince a fire to heat things. That's what a fire does. You don't have to convince a peach to be sweet because that's what a peach is and does. It's sweet. You don't have to try to go and tell a Christian, a fully devoted follower of Christ, to love other fully devoted follower of, followers of Christ because that's what they do by their new nature. So I want you to be careful. You don't hear verse 11 as, well, this is what I have to now go and try to do so that I can prove to myself that I'm in. Total misread of that verse. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now John says something strange here. He says that nobody's ever seen God. But John, the disciple that Jesus loved, walked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And in that earthly ministry, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He and I are one. You've seen me, you've seen him. You want to know what God's like? Looky here, Jesus said. But John is saying that no one has ever seen God the Father fully revealed in glory, manifest in presence, because we still have a sin nature, we still have mortal bodies that are corrupted, and that would kill us. And Jesus has ascended. So how does the world at large see the presence of God? It's sort of a shocking answer. The world sees the presence of God manifest by how God's people love one another. You will know, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Not eros, not storge, not philos, but how you self-sacrificially serve and give and want the other's good. That's how the world sees the presence of God in this age. This is what John is saying. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now I need to talk about that for just a moment because there has been some teaching that has emerged in the last several decades that says when you become a believer, you get a bit of God's spirit. And that as you grow, you get a little bit more of God's spirit. Like, I don't know, at conversion, you get uh, 38% of the Holy Ghost. And then you do some good stuff. You, uh, you don't cheat on your taxes. And so, oh, another 12% of the spirit. Good for you. And then you keep doing some more stuff. And you get more of God's spirit. Till one day, man, you are kicking it at 67%. Now you're vested. All right. No, I, it makes no sense. And here's why. Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third member of the Godhead Trinity, and he is indivisible. You cannot, by definition, get a little bit of the Spirit. This is not biblically sanctioned teaching. At the moment of conversion, a person is indwelled by the Spirit of God in totality and some. You will never have more of the Holy Spirit. The question, of course, as the old adage says, is how much of you does he have? That I don't know. But you will never have more of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, The mark of a Christian is that they have the Spirit of Christ. Not partly, but always and total. You cannot possibly in this age be any closer to God nor he to you because he indwells the redeemed and the regenerate. You cannot be closer at all. You have all of his Spirit all the presence of God abiding, abiding. I hope by now you're starting to see that John repeats himself over and over and over again about abiding in him and him and us and us and him and him and us. Why? Because thick skulled people like me need to get the message because I have a tendency to forget. Oh, that's right. I'm having a bad day. Oh, that's right. I'm struggling with shame. Oh, that's right. I'm having a financial crisis or a health circumstance. But God could not be closer. He abides in me. Not because he has to. 
but because he wants to, because he chooses to, because he loves me. Let me tell you, if I'm the sovereign of the universe, this is the last place I'm moving in. But he loves me, and he chooses to be here. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. I love these two verses so very much. Herein, compactly and concisely, is the doctrine of the Trinity, the father, the son, and the spirit, eternally existing, and there is one God, of one essence. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. John wants us to know that the Trinity has existed eternally in perfect love and fellowship for one another. And they have now invited us into that fellowship. Our response can only be, we are invited into that perfect community of love. We also love because that's who we are. All the doctrine of the Trinity brought to bear here. And it's super important, by the way, this doctrine of the Trinity. It's not just a theological academic idea. It is foundational and fundamental to our confession as Christians. Or as one of my seminary professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, used to say, if you do not hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, you can call your religion anything you want, but don't call it Christian because that one's taken. In other words, if you strip out the doctrine of the Trinity and you say, well, I'm a binatarian, I'm a unitarian, I'm a something else, call your thing whatever you want to call your thing, but don't call it Christian because Christianity is Trinitarian by definition in Scripture. And all of that is brought to bear in how we are to respond to this community of love that God is. We are to respond accordingly. Verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This confession, this homologeo, speaking the same word. God says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, whom I love. And we agree with him. We speak the same words. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. It's just astonishing to me how John describes God the Father. God is the one who has sent his son. There's a Christian philosopher, author, writer, theologian, academic professor named Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's brilliant. He writes books that I understand maybe 2% of if someone explains it to me. He's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. But a number of years ago, he experienced a tragedy. His son was killed in a climbing accident. He fell to his death, and it was an awful, awful thing, and Walter Storff was never quite the same, and he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. It's very gripping, just how this intellectual dealt with the crushing emotional reality of his son, and he writes in the book that a number of years later, he was invited to speak at a conference, and the conference hosts asked him, before he got up to speak, how would you like for us to introduce you, Dr. Walter Storff? And he knew what they meant, but he writes, all I could think of was, in my mind, I just wanted them to know that I'm the guy whose son died. And I will forever think of myself and be aware of my surroundings as I'm the guy whose son died. And John is saying the same thing, don't you see? That the father is forever identifying himself. I am the God whose son died. I am the God for all eternity. In the presence of the angels and the saints, I am the God, the only God, who for all eternity will be identified as, I am the one who gave of myself for the sake of those who didn't deserve it. It's a brilliant 
astonishingly glorious way that God describes himself and that John picks up on here. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. See, John's repeating himself so that we get this. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is this mutual interdwelling thing that's happening here. How do I know? One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus and his little inner circle of disciples go up on the mountain, and Jesus just sort of temporarily pulls back the veil of the physical world. And they're just right there in glory. Please notice, they did not take off across the Milky Way or go through a space-time continuum wormhole. It's just right there. Glory is all about us. Jesus just removes the separating veil for a moment, and they are able to see glory. What John is describing here is those who abide in God and God in them, if we could pull that same veil back for just a moment, we would see a whole bunch of people in here that we would not be able to tolerate the sight because it would be so magnificent. Because God, by his spirit, abides within these people that are sitting around you and me. And we in them. And it would be so magnificent, C.S. Lewis writes, that we'd be tempted to fall down and worship. And then there would be some, perhaps seated in this room, in whom God does not abide. And it would break our hearts. And right there, I wonder if some of you go, that would be me. How can I know for sure? John says the litmus test, the yardstick, the measuring tape is, do you love what God loves? Because if you love someone, you love what they love. God's love lets us love what God loves, and what God loves is people. Verse 17, by this is love perfected. Now, that does not mean it gets to be sinless or faultless or or perfect in our lives. It's the word telos. It reaches its goal. It comes to completion. How does God show the world that he loves them, even the unregenerate, by how these people in here love one another? That is the goal of God's love toward us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. We can have confidence. We have nothing to fear when we see Christ return. Nothing. Judgment has already occurred. Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear of consequence. We have confidence in his return for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. God sent his people Israel. Then God sent his son Jesus. God has sent his spirit and now God also sends us his people. We are the presence of God in this age and we are called to lead people away from the coming judgment and into the identity as being the beloved. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you're still holding on, like, I can't really love somebody else because there might not be enough for me, or what if God doesn't come through, or what if it turns out badly and I die? Okay. A Christian becomes the kind of person like the Apostle Paul who says, well, I'm alive, Jesus is with me, and when I'm dead, I'm with him. Do your worst. I am now free to serve you, church at Philippi, is what Paul says. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, I love me some Jesus, but I can't stand his people, start over. Go back to that first one. You've missed the point. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, meaning he doesn't love God. 
He misunderstands. He merely has fear and wants to not go to hell one day when he dies. That's not redemption nor regeneration. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now this strikes a chord with me. Because I have friends and I have family who claim to love God, who objectively and intellectually confess, yeah, I think Jesus was who he said he was, that's great, but I have no use for his church whatsoever. This text is very blatant right in our business. It says, I'm sorry, you do not get the groom without the bride. The New Testament knows no unchurched believer. The New Testament knows no believer who is not experiencing, the Latin word is insula, close, small togetherness. You will never find that person in the New Testament. It's always God's plan. But I know many people, if I may, particularly men, who have walked away from the church because they have found her wanting. Like, what's the difference? What's the good? All I ever hear there is ought, ought, and should. To the to the shame of leaders like me who want to be more about preaching the grace of the gospel and the life-altering covenantal relationship that we can enter into because of the work of Jesus and therefore into community with one another. And so I want to, I want to be blunt and say that I believe that this is a significant season in the life of this church where Bethel is being called to reach out to those who have walked away and found the bride wanting and to be salty and lighty again. So I want us to emphasize this whole semester this idea of community. Not community in the sense that, well, we get around and we gripe about how flavorless quinoa is, because I guess some of you people do that. I don't know why. But authentic community. And I want to describe and define community thus. Community is the context in which God's love is shared among God's people. Look, as a pastor, I hear this all the time. We were going to your church for a while, but we've kind of gone. We went and found someplace else. And I say, why? Why is it? Was it the music? No, that guy's awesome. That, that music is incredible. It's great. Well, why? Was it too cold? Yes. Okay, well, that's fine. But, but what about, was it this? No. Was it this? No. Was it the preaching? Eh, they never really tell me that. I always assume that it is. Why are you leaving? What's going on? What's the exit interview? What's the re and it's always the same. I just never got connected. I just really never knew anybody. Nobody knew me. I know. Because I think at the heart of every person, what they desperately want is community, and they're also desperately afraid to pursue it themselves. We've been in this space almost three years as a campus, and I am convinced that this is the next seismic and tectonic lurch forward for our campus, for our congregation, that we get aggressive and emphatic in pursuing small togetherness and community. And so let me just tell you, I want to announce that on Sunday, September 17th, we're going to have our formal life group launch. Now, just about every one of you in this room has some sort of smartphone. Look at your calendar. Whatever else you have on September 17th, delete it. Unless it's like a pancreas transfusion, delete it. I want you to be here on Sunday, September 17th. All of us, if you're hearing my voice, whether live or on stream or podcast, I want you to prayerfully plan on participating on September 17th. It's Sunday. Right after the service, we'll go down to the first floor. There will be fun, music. We'll have food. And this is a chance for every single person to get affiliated and associated with some sort of small group. 
I've already spoken with the elders and the deacons last Tuesday night and said, hey, boys, this is coming. Saddle up. Your presence is required. Your involvement is demanded. It is our role as elders and deacons and pastors to lovingly usher these people, God's people, into community. Because if we don't, they're gone. They're to the wind. And like Mike said earlier, they will go to another church and praise God, I hope they fit and I hope they stick. But it is our job to create environments in which those people stick. So Sunday, September 17th, on the first floor, all of our existing groups will be there. They will receive new members. And to the extent we need more and more and more groups, our elders and our deacons and other leaders will be prepared to handle that. Mike Hall, our associate pastor, Tyler Sullins, one of our new deacons, are taking that by the nose and they're going to lead that process and make it awesome. It is the thing I'm convinced that God is calling us to for the fall semester of 2017 is small togetherness. Now, I, I get it. Sometimes that's hard to do. But I'm convinced that our campus is not going to move forward unless we do this. And so I know that there are some potential objectives or objections that you say, I don't really want to do that. So let me just help you out here. I'm going to go ahead and speak these objections into reality, and then I'm going to shoot them out of the sky. Objection number one, community isn't comfortable. If your expectation is that you're going to walk into some group, a life group, a Bible study, a men's group, a women's group, whatever, and it's just going to be the place where everyone nurtures your soul and washes your feet and takes care of you and, oh, sweet, reset your expectations because everybody in the room is probably thinking the same thing and you're all going to be disappointed, which is why a lot of these groups fail. Community is not comfortable. It's not easy. Or if I can borrow the millennial buzzword, it ain't organic. We just sit there and it just happens, man. No, it doesn't, because these are all natural-born enemies who have entered into a life-altering covenantal relationship with a loving Redeemer, and now we get to love what He loves, which is one another. And sometimes that's hard, but community is not comfortable. It's not about you being comfortable. It is about finding an environment in which you can love like God does. Sometimes in a costly way. Sometimes in a sacrificial way. Sometimes in a servantly way. That's what community is to be about. Not for you to be comfortable. It's also not convenient. Community is not convenient. It's just going to happen. We're just going to show up and we're going to have a casserole and it's going to be so warm and rich it's going to be another warm blanket for my soul. No! You're going to have to work at it. And there's going to be that guy, usually it's me, who shows up early and eats all your Cheetos and then won't want to go home once it's over. I know! It's an irritant. So figure it out. Set ground rules. I don't know. It's not easy and it involves people which are always irritating. And guess what? If you're in a group that doesn't have somebody irritating, it's you! I get it. Community is not convenient. And if you're expecting it to be just awesome, reset your expectations. Community is the environment. It is the context in which we share God's love with God's people. The third thing is this. <laughs> Community is a command. It's not optional, y'all. Look, you can take it up with the risen Lord Jesus if you like. I didn't write this stuff. If it was up to me, I would kind of sharpie through 1 John 4, 21. This is my command, that you do this. I think John has in mind the great commandment of Jesus in Matthew 22. Love God, love one another. You cannot separate those two. The mark of a disciple of Christ is increasing love of God, increasing love of others, even though they don't deserve it. 
because I didn't deserve it and God loves me. It is not optional. So let me put it this way, if I can be so blunt, blatant, and direct. If you are not involved in some sense of Christian authentic community sanctioned by the church, you are operating outside God's will for your life. I look forward to your emails. <laughs> or Tom, your Snapchat or whatever you use these days. If you are not involved in and experiencing some type of intimate community and engagement with other believers sanctioned by the church, you are operating outside God's plan for your life and you will never be fulfilled. So I want to invite you into that. You're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. But September 17th, I want to invite you to prayerfully plan on participating in that day. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is a significant milestone, a big rock in the future of this campus. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, God is not abiding in you, nor are you abiding in God. And you're trying to slug it out and live this life as best you can according to some social custom of let's just all hold hands and plant trees. Get ready for a life of frustration and disappointment. It's not going to happen. But we believe that what the scriptures tell us is the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life of holy righteousness, fulfilling the demands of the law, paying the wages of sin, which is death. And he offers us the exchange of that scorecard freely and that we can be known as and identified as the beloved. If you've never actually had that penny drop, I invite you to believe. Not because it's easy. It's actually impossible. And you might not agree with it or like it or understand all of it. I don't care. This is truth, and I invite you to believe. I invite you to have the boldness to speak with someone you know or love or trust about this. And for the rest of us, let me just say, maybe you've fallen more in love with Jesus but more out of love with his bride, and let me just say, that's, that's not okay. I've been wrestling with this all week long of how do I put this out there, so I'm just going to throw a nice underhanded pitch right across the plate and let you do with it what you will. And I pray that the Spirit of God will convict all of us into community. It's our job as leaders, as pastors, elders, and deacons to provide an environment in which you can experience authentic Christian community, and we want to do that. If you have a legitimate excuse that says, I can't do that, I can't be in Christian community because I have like stage nine impetigo, fine, come and talk to me about that. We'll like find something for you. But everybody else, may this be the season of life where we do life together and have community. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for your word, for your spirit. Father, thank you for your people. I pray that your word, not mine, your word will move in every heart and draw us to be ready, accessible, desirous of community. Where there are objections and defenses, Holy Spirit, would you, by grace, simply just remove them. Draw us into an understanding that this is your plan for our lives. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, then in whom you are not abiding, that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. And for the rest of us, Father, who have known you for a very long time, but perhaps are growing weary of your sons and daughters, would you give us an affection all anew for our brothers and sisters? Lead us to agape, Father. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.